If you have a Bible with you, open up to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 20, and we're in the middle of a three-part series of Paul's address to the Ephesian elders. And so last week, we looked a little bit at Paul's faithful testimony of the past, verses 17 to 21. Uh, Today, we're going to look at the middle portion, Paul's faultless witness of the present in verses 22 through 27. And then next week, we're gonna see Paul's final exhortation for the future in the remainder of the chapter. So it's kind of a long address of Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders, and we're taking three weeks to take a look at exactly what it is that he's saying to them, how he's encouraging them, challenging them. And so we're looking again at Paul's faultless witness in the present, verses 22 through 27. Here's what we read. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can take everything to you in prayer. And thank you that one day we'll be with you in heaven forever where prayer will no longer be needed. Our faith will be sight and it will be transformed totally into the glory that you give us when we uh, leave this world. And so God, we're looking forward to that day. And in the meantime, I pray that we would learn to be a faultless witness for you. Thank you for Paul's example. Thank you for this exhortation towards the Ephesian elders. Help us to learn what you want us to learn today so that we can live out our faith more faithfully. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite authors and church historians, pastor from England, wrote a book entitled Five English Reformers, which gives many of the details of the martyrs of the faith in the nation of England. These men and some women were burned at the stake in the midst of the English Reformation when Bloody Mary came to the throne. She was a staunch Roman Catholic and wanted to briskly undo all the progress that had been taking place in the Protestant English Reformation. The book is an excellent read and it details the lives and ministries and families of many of the English reformers. It also tells us why they were burned at the stake. All but one of those martyrs looked death in the eye without hesitation, without flinching, and without recanting their beliefs. A total of 288 Christians were martyred between the years of 1555 and 1558. I said all but one held firm. The one man who did actually recant his faith is a well-known man by the name of Thomas Cranmer. 
He actually did deny his faith. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and after J.C. Ryle tells of all of Cranmer's progress aiding the Reformation and how he had been used by God to bring about much change and even laid the foundation of the Book of Common Prayer, he then writes the following. This is what that book looks like, Five English Reformers. It's a shorter version of a longer work of J.C. Ryle, but I'm saying Cranmer was doing a great work Then he recanted, and then we're going to see he comes back to uh, actually be burned at the stake at the very end. Here's what J.C. Riles writes about this particular incident. He says this, I say all these things in order to break the force of the great and undeniable fact that he was the only English reformer who for a time showed the white feather and for a time shrank shrank from dying for the truth. I admit that he fell sadly. I do not pretend to extenuate his fall. It stands forth as an everlasting proof that the best men are only men at best. I want my readers to remember that if Cranmer failed, as no other reformer in England failed, he also had done what certainly no other reformer had done. So J.C. Ryle said, hey, this is a good guy. He made a lot of progress in the Reformation, but when his life was on the line, he did fall. And he goes on to say, from the moment that Mary came to the English throne, Cranmer was marked for destruction. It is probable that there was no other English divine whom the unhappy queen regarded with such rancor and hatred. She never forgot that her mother's divorce was brought about by Cranmer's advice, and she never rested until he was burned. Cranmer was imprisoned and examined just like Ridley and Latimer, Like them, he stood his ground firmly before the commissioners. Like them, he had clearly the best of the argument in all points that were disputed. But like them, of course, he was pronounced guilty of heresy, condemned, deposed, and sentenced to be burned. And now comes the painful fact that in the last month of Cranmer's life, his courage failed him. And he was persuaded to sign a recantation of his Protestant opinions. Flattered and cajoled by subtle kindness, frightened at the prospect of so dreadful a death as burning, tempted and led away by the devil, Thomas Cranmer fell. And he put his hand to a paper in which he repudiated and renounced the principles of the Reformation for which he had labored so long. Great was the sorrow of all true Protestants on hearing these tidings. Great was the triumphing and the exaltation of all papists. And then he talks about how later, after Cramer had a chance to think about what he had done, think about how he had fell, he comes back and makes a strong stand at the end. J.C. Ryle writes this, he says, at last, through abounding grace, he witnessed such a bold confession in St. Mary's Oxford that he confounded his enemies filled his friends with thankfulness and praise and left the world in a triumphant, as a triumphant martyr for Christ's truth. I need hardly to remind you how on the 21st of March, the unhappy archbishop was brought out like Samson in the hands of the Philistines to make sport for his enemies and to be a gazing stock to the world at St. Mary's Church at Oxford. At Oxford, I need hardly to remind you how after Dr. Cole's sermon, he was invited to declare his faith and he was fully expected to acknowledge publicly his alteration of religion and his adhesion to the Church of Rome. I need hardly to remind you how with intense 
uh, mental suffering, the archbishop addressed the assembly at great length and at the close suddenly astounded his enemies by renouncing all of his former recantations, declaring the pope to be the antichrist and rejecting popish doctrine of the real presence Such a sight was certainly never seen by mortal eyes since the world began. But then came the time of Cranmer's triumph. With a light heart and a clear conscience, he cheerfully allowed himself to be hurried to the stake amidst the frenzied outcries of his disappointed enemies. Boldly and undauntedly, he stood up at the stake while the flames curled around him, steadily holding out his right hand in the fire, saying, with reference to having signed a recantation, this unworthy right hand, and steadily holding up his left hand towards heaven, of all the martyrs, strange to say, none at the last moment showed more physical courage than Cranmer did. Nothing in short in all of his life became him so well as the manner of his leaving it. Greatly he had sinned, but greatly he had repented. Like Peter fell, and like Peter, he rose again, and so passed away the first Protestant Archbishop of Canterbury. Just an amazing story, isn't it? You can read story after story in a book like this. Again, five English reformers, but what really got me was that he recanted. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of like, oh, one guy, he like cowered it out at the end because I can kind of see myself being that guy. You could see yourself maybe in the reality of thinking that you'll hold on to the very end, but you don't really know until you're in that moment. And then as we read through the story, you see that God rebuilt his courage and rebuilt his faith in such a way that the second time he was able to stand firm and even held his hand out in that fire just to defy the evil of what had overcome him the first time to say he was ready to die with his Lord. And I think when we read a story like that, we got to all, again, ask the question, what would you have done if you had been in Cramer's place? Would you have kept the faith the first time? Would, would you have recanted? And I think, again, all of us might not really know until we're in that very moment. I'm sharing that illustration because Paul, on the other hand, by the grace of God, was a faithful apostle who never recanted. He was before kings and before judges, He was faced immense persecution, as we know, as we've been studying through the book of Acts. And yet, by God's grace, Paul was a faithful witness for Christ who never denied the faith. From his conversion to his death, he never faltered. And so in our passage today, we're going to see how Paul intended to be a faultless witness to Christ and to Scripture. And as we look at this second message of our trilogy, if you will, on Paul's final address to the Ephesian elders, today we're going to look at three challenges that we face as we also seek to be a faultless witness. I mean, certainly while we can draw strength from Cranmer's testimony, mainly because he came back and did it right the second time, we, we, we certainly want to bolster our faith in a way that we might follow more in Paul's example of not even recanting the first time. And so here's three challenges that we face to, so that we can seek to be a faultless witness for Christ. Here's number one. Number one, commit to follow the Spirit of God no matter what. And your first blank, if you are taking notes, says bound by the Spirit. We are bound by the Spirit. Let's look at the first part of here, uh, verse 22. It says, and now behold, this is Paul speaking, 
to the, you know, the Ephesian elders there on the, on the, on the, on, at uh, Miletus, there on the shore, and he says, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Now remember Paul here, he is compelled by the Spirit of God to go to Jerusalem and to fulfill his mission and to bring a special offering to the church there. He mentioned that he'd been collecting an offering. He's gonna take it to Jerusalem. He wants to get there as soon as he can. And so as a passionate witness of Christ, Paul had this single-minded devotion. I'm getting that again from the beginning of verse 22 when he says he's constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He, he's, 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 uh, he's, he's constrained. What exactly does that mean? Well, the NASB says that he was bound by the Spirit, constrained by the Spirit, bound by the Spirit. This is simply pointing to the fact that Paul had a strong compulsion to fulfill his ministry. That the word constrained or bound is actually even used often to refer to physical binding as with chains or with ropes. It's also used figuratively at times to talk about the powerful tie of the marriage bond, that you're bound together for, till, till death do us part between husband and wife. And just with that same strength is what Paul's saying in this passage. He's referring to his sense of duty, that he's got a responsibility to the Lord Jesus Christ that drove him to Jerusalem no matter what, no matter what would happen, no, ma no matter, it didn't matter how high the price, it didn't matter what the cost, it didn't matter the opinions of others, it didn't matter whether it was safe or not, it mattered about what, what it was that God called him to do. And it didn't matter because he's bound by the Spirit to complete his mission. I mean, it kind of reminds me of that same spirit we saw Paul have in Acts 17 while he was in Athens when it says that his spirit was provoked within him, that he was stirred up and that he had deep compassion and he had a deep compelling desire to fulfill what it is that God wanted him to do. I wonder if you've ever had that. Have you ever been bound by the Spirit, compelled by the Spirit to do something, to say something, that you're in a situation and you just felt like, I can't stay silent any longer. I, I must speak up. I, I must speak out. I must speak into this situation for the truth of God's Word. Have you ever been at a time like that where you felt like your heart would just burst if you didn't make some confession, if you didn't say some truth, if you didn't bring some clarification to an issue at hand, maybe you've been sitting in class, maybe you've been having a discussion with uh, people in, in, uh, at work and they just kept going on and on and on about some liberal situation and you're just like, you know what, I gotta say something. I cannot sit here anymore and just say nothing. I'm gonna speak into this situation. Maybe it's with a neighbor, a classmate, maybe it's a family member or a friend, but you simply must do something that would shine light on the glory of Christ. This is in a sense what Paul's sensing here, this very strong bond, or he's compelled to go to Jerusalem. And notice in your next blank, he's unsure of the outcome, unsure of the outcome. When he heads to Jerusalem, he's been getting a sense that it may not go that well. He says at the end of verse 22, not knowing what will happen to me there. So he's unsure of the outcome. It's not like obeying God always leads to good things from a human perspective. You know, you, you may choose to obey God and lose your job. You may choose to obey God and lose a friendship. You may choose to obey God and lose a dating relationship. 
The point is, is that obeying God doesn't always lead to external comfort or success. In fact, oftentimes when Paul obeyed God, it led to his physical persecution. And so we got to understand that God's called us to trust him, to walk with him, and to follow him no matter what. It doesn't matter what the risks are. You know, we talk a lot of times about where we want to be wise, we want to be safe, we want to be strategic, but sometimes we don't talk about, are you willing to risk your life? Are you willing to go into a situation and say something that may cost you? Because we see great risk that's happening. Not everything is going to be safe all the time. We are to obey the Great Commission, even in the midst of great risk and great danger. Jesus said in the Great Commission, go, therefore, and make disciples in all nations. He, he doesn't say just in the safe nations, just in the Western mindset nations, just in the nations that will welcome you and lay out the red carpet for you. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. But he also says at the end of that, and behold, I am with you always, wherever he sent you, whatever he calls you to do, his presence is with you. His strength is going to hold you up, and it might lead to your own death. It might lead to persecution, but if you're doing it for the Lord, in his strength, for his glory, then certainly you're stepping out in faith. You're stepping out in obedience, which means that you're trusting God even if you don't know all the circumstances. I mean, isn't that the definition of faith? Trusting God even when you don't know what's going to happen based on the principles you see in God's word, based on that drive he's given you as a disciple of Christ, that you're going to step forward and say what needs to be said, do what needs to be done, no matter the consequences. And that's kind of the attitude of Paul here. Again, we're saying if we want to be faultless in our witness for him, then we've got to commit to follow the spirit of God no matter what. No, no matter what's going on, we have to commit to that mindset. And then verse 23 says that he's certainly aware of the affliction. So in one sense, it's unknown. But then in verse 23, he is aware that there's going to be affliction there. He knows it's going to be a fight. He says that he doesn't know what's going to happen to me there, end of 22, except, verse 23, that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. So he doesn't know the exact details, but he knows it's going to be hard, and there's going to be affliction, and there's going to be imprisonment, even right there in Jerusalem, the holy city that he's going to face from his fellow Jews. I mean, he had already been warned several times not to go to Jerusalem because of the physical harm that would happen to him. That's what he's saying here in verse 23. It, it had apparently been revealed to Paul that he would face persecution in Jerusalem. And this, excuse me, this specific detail had not yet been described to him, but it should come as no surprise that when, wherever Paul went, he, he faced persecution and he would eventually be run out of town. And, and we, we do get a little bit more clarity. Maybe if you turn over to chapter 21, here's one specific prophecy given by Agabus. Look at Acts 21, verses 10 through 11, where at this point, as Paul's heading to Jerusalem, he had landed in Caesarea, which is there on the coast in Jerusalem. And then in verse 10 and 11 of Acts 21, we read, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. 
So there's one example of a clear prophecy where everybody knew, apparently, if you go to Jerusalem, you will be persecuted. You will be bound. You will face affliction. And some were trying to deter him from that, but the Spirit of God had compelled him, constrained him. And so Paul is going to go, and you say, well, how does this work in the Christian life? Just remember the principle of 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I mean, it's a, it's a given. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The only way to not be persecuted is to not live a godly life. But if you are living a godly life, at some point, in some way, there will be persecution. And so let me just ask you this morning, have you committed to follow the Spirit of God no matter what? When you read something like this, are you like, oh man, I don't know if it's worth it. I don't know if I would do that. I, wanna, I might be more like Thomas Cranmer, or are you more like, you know what, I got to do it. I have a conviction to do it. I'm compelled to do it. I understand that the, the Spirit of God compels us through the Word of God. And so I believe it's not like the Spirit of God is going to speak to you today through the voice of a prophet, like he did maybe there to Paul, as there was still divine revelation being given. But the Spirit of God does work through the desires that he ordains in your heart, and he works through the principles of Scripture that we see, like the Great Commission. And it is our objective to be evangelistic and to be disciple-makers, all of us in all parts of life. And part of the, the application I'm drawing from verses 22 and 23 is that we want to commit to follow the Spirit of God no matter what. And again, following the Spirit of God means following the Word of God. And that means in mission work, and it also applies in everyday life. This has to do with how, husbands, you would love your wife even if you feel like she doesn't deserve it. The truth is, you don't deserve her. But you have to walk in faith and say, you know, I'm going to love my wife this way anyway. This means, wives, that you need to learn to, with God's help, to submit to and respect your husbands, even if you believe that you have a better way. This means, this idea of being constrained by the Spirit to follow Him no matter what, it means that young people who live in the home need to obey and honor your mom and dad, even if you feel like they're too strict or they're too old in the way they approach certain things in 2023. Now, this means that we need to, to love and follow the leadership of our church, even when we don't fully agree or understand this means that we need to be giving regularly and generously and sacrificially and joyfully to the Lord, e even when you think you can't afford it. I'm just saying being constrained by the Spirit means following Him in every area, even if in your humanity and in your feeling in that moment, it doesn't make sense. You know what's right and you know what's true because it's in God's Word. And God's Word is is confirming with your heart to step out in faith and to walk in obedience. And that's just one example, again, of how we can learn to carry out a faultless witness, just like the Apostle Paul. Here, here's a second challenge, a second thing that we see here about being a faultless witness for Christ. Number two, carry out the ministry that Christ has called you to. Carry out the ministry that Christ has called you to. And in order to do that, your next sub-point here says, my life is nothing. Certainly what Paul realized here, in order to carry out that ministry that God's called you to, you've got to be able to get to that place where you say, my life is nothing. Listen to what Paul says here at the beginning of verse 24. He says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. And so only 
one thing here mattered to Paul, and that was to finish the work that God had given him to do. And what happened to him was of no consequence. As the apostle weighs the situation in his mind, he did not think that his own life was the great consideration. Paul's ambition was to obey God and to please him. And in so doing, he would be called upon to offer up his life, and he was willing to do so. No sacrifice he could make would be too great for the one who died for him. So be it was his attitude. He was willing to give his life for the glory of Christ. And your life is not supposed to be so precious to you. You know, we value our life, and in some ways we would say, yes, we affirm the sanctity of life, and I think you should take good care of your body as a steward. You know, there's all these principles in Scripture that we certainly would say yes and amen to, but in this kind of text, he's saying, look, it's not all about your safety. Your safety and your comfort can be idols, and your reputation that you're trying to protect, you don't want to be known as being too radical. You don't want to stir up the pot too much, and you'd rather just kind of lay low and just kind of ride it out. And there's, there's, there's this sentiment in this whole text about, look, we as witnesses of Christ need to understand that we don't need to value our life so much. We shouldn't hold on to our life with that kind, of, that kind of sentiment that we would hold on to our own comfort more than we hold on to Christ. In a sense, we gotta be willing to sacrifice our lives for the love of Christ. I tell you, what's supposed to be precious is not necessarily your life, though I told you in one sense it is precious because you have, have uh, the, the image of God, but in another sense, you're willing to sacrifice it. And, and what's precious in the scripture is 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So what scripture is saying is precious is the blood of Christ. That's what's precious. The sacrifice that Christ made, Christ's life was precious, not yours, at least not in that same way. Instead, we should be willing, the Bible repeatedly says, to lose our lives. That's what we're called to, to lose our lives, Mark 8, 34 and 35, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He's never like saying, hey, be comfortable, be safe, do what the Western world would encourage you to do. Get, get, you know, the main goal in life is get a great education, get a great job, and uh, you know, get married, have a family, two kids, white picket fence, buy a Tesla, right? That's what, that's what, that's what Elon Musk is selling you right now, all right? It's not, I mean, if you have a Tesla, that's great. I'm going to get one one day, Lord willing. By faith, I'm staying it by faith. No, I'm just kidding. All right, so, uh, <laughs> Tyson, come back, baby, come back. All right, so the, the idea here is that we've got to be willing to say, you know what, that's not for me. That's not my main objective. I'm not saying that's not a good thing to do. We, we get it, but there's this, 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 there's this balance here. If that's really all you're about, then you've got nothing to offer to Christ, but if in doing that, you're glorifying Christ, and if at the same time you say, and I'll give it up, I'll go to Italy. God calls me to Italy, I'm gone. God calls me to Southeast Asia, I'm gone. God calls me to Uganda, I'm out of here. If God calls me to Fiji, that's great. Praise the Lord. 
It happened to Michael and Jordan. Is it gonna happen to you? Who knows? You know, but you know, the idea here is that God calls us to be willing to lose everything. That's the Christian call. And in order to be a faultless witness, you have to get to that point to where you say, I'm willing to do anything. I'm willing to go anywhere because what's precious to me is not my own life, but the life of Christ. And this is what Paul says, the similar things on a number of occasions. Next chapter in Acts 21, verse 13, then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready to not only be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He says in Philippians chapter one, verse 20 and 21, a passage you know well, that it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the mindset of a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus called us to. This is what Paul is living out. This is what he's calling us to in a sense that we're to consider our life as nothing. Our goal should be, your next blank, my goal is to finish my course. That's what Paul's saying. My goal is to finish my course. Again, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry. So that's what mattered to Paul. That mattered is he got to finish what God had started in him. And he's not done yet. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to go to Rome. He's got more to say, more to write, more to do. And so Paul is discussing this mindset of, I got to finish. I, I can't stop short. And certainly we read that. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9, 24. And you get this idea of Paul finishing what he started as he discusses running the race. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race, all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. In other words, I'm running the race not for what I get on earth, not for the accolades of men or the treasures I store up on earth. I'm running for storing up treasure in heaven. And he says, I do not run aimlessly, verse 26. I do not box as one beating the air. So it would be silly to run a race without a goal, right? You hear some runners down here. It would be silly. You're like, go run. How far? Where's the finish line? Oh, I don't know. Just go run. Just go run. I mean, that would be like Forrest Gump, and you guys aren't like that, all right? You go, that's, that's an old movie right there. But, you know, the idea is you run with a race in mind, a goal in mind, a finish line in mind. We run not aimlessly, not as a boxer beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So we say, hey, I'm, I'm running the race, and I'm, I'm giving it my all. I'm here to finish that race, to finish my course. I mean, it's got to bring to mind what Paul had said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 6 and 7. You know this passage where he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and in the time of my departure comes, I have fought the fight. He says, I have finished the race. I have kept the, the, uh, the faith. And this is what God calls us to. We want to run the, run the race, finish the race, 
and keep the faith in so doing. And so Paul knew what his ministry was. It was just to, to be a witness for Christ, to, to preach Christ wherever he went. And that, that leads us to our next blank. He's saying here in C, in your outline, that my ministry is from Jesus. My ministry is from Jesus. He says that I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. Notice that Paul acknowledges that his ministry is not given to him by man. It is given to him by God. It is from the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may ask, well, what was Paul's ministry? Well, if you want to see where he got it from Jesus, look at Acts, go back to chapter 9, at his conversion, when he's waiting there for Ananias to come give him further instructions, the Lord said to him in Acts 9.15, go for he, it would be Saul, who's about to become Paul, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So what's his mission? to be an instrument, to, to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the Israelites, and also to suffer for the name of Christ. This is the ministry that was declared by Ananias to be given specifically to Paul, that this would be the outline of his life and his ministry as he shares the gospel. And as a minister of the gospel, Paul saw himself fulfilling at least six different roles. And as I was reading Warren Wearsby's Bible exposition commentary, uh, I was just encouraged by these six different roles. So let me just give them to you. You see it in your outline. Number one, Paul saw him himself as an accountant, as an accountant. That's for you, Mr. Koschuk. Paul saw himself as an accountant. What are we talking about? Well, Acts 2.24, but I do not account my life as any value or as precious to myself as we just read, but he wants to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul had examined his assets and his liabilities and decided to put Jesus ahead of everything else. He had faced this kind of reckoning early in his ministry and he had been willing to make the spiritual emphasis of his life the number one priority in his life. That's why he writes as well in Philippians 3, 7, when Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So he's an accountant, and he said, hey, whatever God gives, it's a loss. It's not about storing up treasure here, it's about storing up treasure there. So he's that kind of accountant. Number two, Paul himself as a runner, saw himself as a runner. We just looked at the 1 Corinthians 9, 27 through the end of the chapter. There's also the Philippians 3, uh, 12 through 14, where Paul says, uh, not that I have already obtained this or already perfect, but I press on. It's the idea of running the race. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, again, here comes the running analogy, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul sees himself as an accountant. Paul sees himself as a runner. Like an athlete in the race, Paul always is pressing on. He is straining forward to what lies ahead. He had a goal, and his goal was to win the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then number three, Paul saw himself as a steward. He saw himself as a steward. 1 Corinthians 4, 
1 and 2, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they should be found faithful. So here we read that Paul knows that as a steward, it is not so much his ministry as something that as it is something he has received from the Lord. It's not mine, possessive, but I'm stewarding God's ministry that he's given to me. The steward owns little or nothing, but possesses all things. His sole purpose is to serve his master and to please him. And the steward must one day give an account of his ministry, and Paul was ready for that day. Number four, Paul saw himself as a witness as a witness, again, the end of verse 24, that he was ready to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And so we're seeing again in this picture here at the end of verse 24, to testify means to solemnly give witness. It reminds us of the seriousness of the message of the ministry. And as we share the gospel with others, it's a matter of life and death. Paul was a faithful witness both in the life that he lived and in the message that he preached. Because number five, Paul saw himself as a herald, as a herald. And, and, and now, Acts 20, 25 is saying, I know that none of among you I have gone about, let me read it again, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So he's been going amongst the Ephesians for the last couple of years, proclaiming the kingdom. We are to be heralds of the truth. Like what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 7, I am telling the truth. I am not lying, he says in that passage. And so we are to declare the message of the gospel as a herald to the king. The witness tells others what has happened to him. I mean, when's the last time you were so moved by reflecting in your own testimony that you just want to say, hey, let me tell you what happened to me. I was enslaved to my sin, and God set me free. You ever had that kind of conviction? I, I was lost on my way to hell, and God saved me. Do you know what I see happening in the culture? People laugh at that. They kind of mock at that. They're like, oh, you're, you're one of those Christians. You got religion. And I just think you just got to stop them in their tracks and just tell them with some conviction instead of just trying to let them control the narrative. The narrative is, you were damned to hell and God saved you by grace through faith that you could have new life. And just sharing that message would be startling if you had a little ump and conviction behind what happened to you. They're like, okay, man, don't, don't get upset. Like, I'm not upset, I'm born again, I'm saved by grace. I'm just telling you where I was, I was stuck in my son, and God set me free. That's the conviction that we see here as a herald, somebody who, as you know, announces for the king, and he proclaims for the king, and he's been commissioned with a message, and he must not change that message in any way. And since he is sent by the king, the people who listen had better be careful how they treat both the message and the messenger. See, if you're sent out by the king, there's accountability that if they mess with you, in a sense, they're messing with God. And again, our, our desire is not that they would pay for it by going to hell, that they would see it and repent like Paul did. He used to persecute the church. Christ showed himself to him and he was born again and saved. And now he's this incredible messenger. So it's very real to him, the, 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 the idea of him being a herald. And then number six, Paul saw himself as a watchman, as a watchman. 
We've looked at this once already a few weeks ago, but it's mentioned here again, and we'll discuss this a little further when I actually get to verse 26, but for now, I'll just say that it was a serious calling to be a watchman. He had to stay awake and alert, and he had to always be ready to sound the alarm if he saw danger coming. That's what a watchman does, right? He had to be faithful, not fearful, because of the safety of so many who rested within the warning that he would give. And I would just say that in one sense, if we're drawing these six, um, these six roles that Paul played, and you, you could read others in scripture, and again, this is just a list by Warren Wiersbe that we're examining here, but in one sense, not only is Paul fulfilling that, but I would just say every Christian, maybe not in a formal sense, but you in an informal sense as a witness for Christ, have these same, these same roles that you and I fulfill, that we wanna be watchmen and we wanna be those that would be faithful heralds and we wanna be good stewards and runners and, and accounting uh, by giving up what we have to gain what we cannot lose. And this is what Paul's doing. Now, you could definitely say that Paul, your next blank there says that Paul would say, my job is to testify the gospel is to testify to the gospel. The, the end of verse 24 there is gonna say uh, that the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So as he's testifying to the gospel, we'll see this in two, two emphases. Number one, your next blank, the gospel of grace. He's testifying to the gospel and the very end of verse 24 is saying that that is the grace of God. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is a gift. Grace is the game-changing work of God in your life that you will never uh, be uh, punished for your sin because he gave you grace. He forgave you and he gave you grace. You, you have the imputed righteousness of Christ. Grace is the beginning of your spiritual life and the ongoing motivation of living a life committed to God. William McDonald writes about grace. He says that it is the thrilling message of God's undeserved favor to guilty, ungodly sinners who deserve nothing but everlasting hell. It tells how the son of God's love came from heaven's highest glory to suffer, bleed, and die on Calvary in order that those who believe on him might receive forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. This is what Paul's talking about. The good news of the gospel is that God gives. He gives his son. He gives salvation. He gives joy. He gives newness of life. And it's by grace that you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so not only are we to be proclaiming that grace that God gives, as Paul is at the end of verse 24, but we're also to be proclaiming, number two, the kingdom of God. So we're proclaiming in the gospel, we're proclaiming the grace of God and the kingdom of God. Look at verse 25, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So again, the, the idea behind the verse is this is last time with the Ephesian elders, and so he's gonna move on, but he's coming back and say, but you know what, the whole time I was with you, I proclaimed the grace of God, and I proclaimed the kingdom of God. What is this, the kingdom of God, oftentimes in the Bible, could refer to that future physical kingdom, what we call the millennial kingdom, 
A lot of references in the Old Testament prophets, in the minor prophets, the book of Revelation, chapter 20, even in Thessalonians, lots of references to that future kingdom. But at this stage, I don't believe Paul's main emphasis is to define the millennial kingdom. I think he's talking more about the kingdom of salvation. So when we read about the kingdom of God, oftentimes the context would be more what some say, the sphere of salvation, being a part of God's family, being, being taken out of the kingdom of darkness, your lost depravity, and being placed into the kingdom of light. And that's how we see Jesus use this term in Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I would say the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are somewhat uh, interchangeable. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, referring again to that kingdom of light, the kingdom of salvation. And so Jesus addresses this topic of the kingdom of God with the Pharisees in Luke 17, 20, when being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. So he's saying in that first advent, the kingdom of God may not be something you see externally because we're not in the millennium yet, which is the second coming, and then the idea of entering into the millennium. But the kingdom of God, Jesus says in this context with the Pharisees, it's not coming in ways that you can observe, nor will they say, look, there it is. There, for behold, Jesus says, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Again, the emphasis here at Christ's first advent is that it's inside of you, that when the Spirit of God dwells in you as a blood-bought child of God, you're in the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, repent, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I think the idea of what's being alluded to by this idea of what it means to be a part of God's kingdom is it means to be a part of God's family. And it means to be a part of the family of God. And in any family, there is service and there is accountability. So when you're in the family, it's expected that you pull your own weight. At our house, kids, you pull your own weight, right? You clean the bathroom, you make up your bed, you help clean the kitchen. You know why? Because mama's tired sometimes. And sometimes we all need to pull our own weight around the house, right? It's what it means to be a part of a family. You help prepare, you help clean up. If you're not doing that at home, shame on you, right? Shame on you. You're part of the family. And I'm just saying part of the kingdom of God is there's some expectation that you serve, that you're a part of that kingdom. And so it's not just all grace in the sense of like, hey, it's all grace, you do whatever you want. It's there's grace, but there's also a kingdom. And to be part of a kingdom means you're submitting to a king. And the king is calling you to a life of service and a life of accountability. A life of accountability. Hey, I'm watching you. Hey, when you get out of line, I'm gonna gently correct you and sometimes sternly correct you depending on what your attitude is in this moment. If you need something more firm, like a father's confrontation or something more soft, like a mother's nurturing, but you're part of this kingdom. And there's this idea that Paul's preaching here about the grace of God and about, again, verse 25, the kingdom of God who he had proclaimed to them and interacted with them. And the question that I'm asking you today is, are you seeing that grace in your own life? And are you seeing the importance of being part of God's kingdom? And when you see that, can you understand or at least appreciate their service and accountability to that kingdom motif? And this is leading us to our third um, 
way that we can help be, have a faultless witness, number three, is to consider the sober responsibility of declaring the whole counsel of God. That in this mindset, and when we just finish up this kingdom mindset, I'm going to carry that a little bit into number three here, but consider the sober responsibility of declaring the whole counsel of God, A, as a faithful watchman. As a faithful watchman, verse 26, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all. I told you we had mentioned this concept once earlier back in Acts chapter 18, verse 6. If you remember when Paul was addressing the Corinthians and when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook off his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And we discuss what does he mean when he says your blood shall be on your heads. I am innocent of you all. Well, turn back with me just because I think it's helpful to go back to Exodus, or excuse me, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 33. And I just want you to see and make sure you got it. All right, the idea here of the importance of being that watchman. Ezekiel 33, verse one, the word of the Lord came to me Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, verse four, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. So he's saying we gotta be a watchman we sound the alarm, we set out the warning, and if we do so, people should heed that warning, and if they don't, the end of verse four says, then their blood will be on their own head. And then it says, he heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning, his blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. So verse five is saying you should have heeded that counsel, that warning, and, and you would have had life, verse six. But if the watchman sees the sword coming, and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So he's saying if the watchman does his job, you don't heed it, it's on you. If the watchman doesn't do his job and you, and you don't heed it, you still have iniquity, the middle of verse six, that person is still taken away in his iniquity because you still have fault, but... The very end of verse six says, his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So, here's the, here's the meaning behind this, verses seven through nine. So, you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person will die in his iniquity, so he's still gonna die in his own sin, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn away from his sin and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Again, I just wanna make sure you get this. Paul is saying, I have warned you. I will not be responsible for your demise. That's what he said to the believers at Corinth, and that's now exactly what he's saying to these believers in Ephesus. And the implication is that those Ephesian elders must follow Paul's example of preaching a gospel that is full and that lacks nothing. 
And that they've got to be willing to, comp- to preach a complete gospel of God's redemption of sinners or face God's chastisement. And that's still true of all pastors. It's true of all elders that we're going to preach the full counsel of God's word. What we're saying here, verse 27, your next blank, it's got to be a thorough message, a thorough message. We're to be watchmen on the wall. And, and, and then Paul says, for I did not shrink, verse 27, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now see where this connects. There's the kingdom of God. There's responsibility and accountability in the kingdom of God. There's the idea that we're called to be watchmen, to sound the warning. And as we're sounding the warning, part of the way you're doing that is just by simply, verse 27, declaring the whole counsel. So when you sound the warning, it means all of scripture needs to be considered. All of scripture needs to be preached. Nothing needs to be held back. Nothing, we don't hesitate on any clarity of the scripture. We share all of it. Sometimes it's not so much what you say, it's what you don't say. That's the problem in churches today. They're willing to say the big thing everybody can agree on. God is love. And everybody in the audience is going to say amen and applaud him. But if the pastor gets up and says, I'm warning you that if you're living in a homosexual lifestyle, unrepentantly, you'll die and go to hell. Now, how many people are going to amen that? Just you guys. I mean, nobody did. But, you know, it would be just you guys because you would be like, you know what? That's the pastor doing what his thing. He's supposed to be the watchman. And he's preaching the whole council because he wants to understand that there's the grace of God, but there's a kingdom. And in that kingdom, we submit to a king. And our job is to be a watchman, and as we are watchmen, to declare the whole council. And so are you prepared to share the whole council of God's word? The word council here is referring to God's plan, God's intention. But it also refers to God's decision and his resolution. This means that we teach all of what God says and not part of it. We tell the whole truth and not just half-truths. In fact, listen to what the Lord said to Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 26.2. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord and all the words that I command you to speak to them, do not hold back a word. All the words that I command you to speak to them, do not hold back a word. And I think, again, the problem is that in today's world, they want to talk about part of the message but not the full message. They want to talk about the mercy of God, but they never mention the judgment of God upon unrepentant sinners. They want to stress the caring for one another, and we should, but they often shy away from the Bible, also talks about confronting one another. Our job is to preach the true gospel as opposed to a false gospel. Our job is to preach biblical morality as opposed to a worldly morality. Our job is to preach that Jesus is our only hope as opposed to our hope being in earthly experiences or in our failing finances or in our physical health. We're we're called to preach the whole counsel. And I think that so many times we pick and choose what we do. And so this is why Paul earnestly is saying to the Ephesian elders, guys, don't hold back. Let it all out. You're to be a faultless witness as Paul was seeking to be and you need to say everything that needs to be said and don't hold back a single thing. And so let me ask you, are you being thorough in your message? Do you have a friend that you've been building a friendship with and you're too scared to confront them because you're afraid they won't be your friend anymore? I, I've, I've been there. So I'm saying build the friendship 
and then say the hard things that need to be said if you really care for them. Because if you're not being faithful to bring the whole counsel of God's word about what it says about their life and the sins that they're experiencing, then I would say you don't really love your friend. You're not being a watchman. You gotta do it tactfully, with care. I'm not seeing you come in there storming and spitting like I am this morning with that mentality. I mean, it's one-on-one, just calm down, just speak the truth earnestly to them in a way that you could share with them the truth of God's word. Look at the take-home section here. The uncertainty of obeying the spirit of God is better than the certainty of disobeying the word of God. So we understand us stepping out in faith, right? We don't know everything. We just know we gotta be faithful. That's way better than just not doing it. Number two, giving up your life requires that you lose your worthless pride in order to gain the joy of an eternal ministry. That's what it means. We're giving up our life. My life is not my own. It's not precious to me. So I'm going to lose that pride of my life. It's got to be a certain way. And I want to gain the joy of focusing on God's ministry, which is eternal. And then last, a faithful watchman is not ultimately responsible for the salvation of others. Let's be clear. You can't save anybody. You're not ultimately responsible for the salvation of others. But you are responsible for declaring the whole counsel. And I just wonder if you're doing that. Are you declaring the whole counsel of God? Well, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, we wanna invite you to come into a personal relationship with him. And you would do that simply by repenting of your sin, realizing that you are a sinner, I'm a sinner, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, confessing that to God and asking for his forgiveness. And that's based on the work of Christ, that Christ came, he loves, he sacrificed, He died so that we could have new life. There's grace at the cross for you. And the part of that gospel message is there's a transformation from the kingdom of darkness to light, which means he now builds in you service, a mindset of service and a mindset of accountability. That's part of what it means to be a Christian, that you serve and submit to God. And that's where you're at in your life this morning. We wanna invite you to come forward after we sing our last song. A few people will be standing right here. We'd love just to be able to share that message with you, help make sure you understand the gospel truths. And if you're here this morning and you need prayer for any other reason at all, let us minister to you this morning if that would be of great help to you. And in the meantime, let's continue to be a faultless, witness for Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to spend some time here in this message that Paul was giving to the church, the, the elders of Ephesus. And just thank you for his faultless witness. We, we, we know he wasn't perfect even after his conversion, but we certainly see great strength, great courage. And I pray that you'd help us to walk in the light, walk in accountability, walk in love, walk in the grace that you extend to us. Thank you that we are not to seek our life or see our life as being precious to ourselves, but rather as, a, as, a, as an instrument in your hands to use to further the gospel message here at home and abroad. Be glorified in our hearts and our lives as we consider how to learn and grow and put it into practice this week. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.